My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Vitti, the Senior Vice President of Marketing at Notch. Today on the show, I am joined by the amazing Adam Blitzer, the CEO of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and quite honestly, one of the most important people in enterprise technology today. Adam is someone I've known since 2008. We first ran into each other when I was at Alfresco Software, and Adam had just founded Pardot, a marketing automation platform. I ended up becoming a Pardot customer, and we've managed to stay in touch ever since. Fast forward 12 years, and I've now been a Pardot and Salesforce customer several times. I've also purchased a ton of other marketing technology during my career, and I hold each of those vendors to the same bar that Adam and his teams have raised. That's not just about the technology, it's also equally about customer success and how to be a true business partner. So I wanted to get Adam's story out there so others could hear some of the great ways to turn customers into advocates. Adam is an incredible leader and visionary and also a great marketer. Here's my conversation with Adam Blitzer. I hope you enjoy. With me today, I have a really special guest, somebody that I have worked on and off with over the last 12 years, Adam Blitzer, the CEO of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Adam, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be with you. Likewise. Likewise. It's been a while. I know we we see each other every every other year, I would say. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's good to be on the same coast again. Yes. So yeah, we're here here in New York. It's good to reconnect. Uh, you did make me feel a little old saying we've worked on and off together for 12 years. Yeah. I. I actually think probably when we started, we had a little more hair, would you say? Mm. Or me? Deba- I'll speak for looking myself. Looking at the two of us, it, it is debatable. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, it's great to have you here. Um, we certainly have a lot of great topics to dig into. But um, first, before we do that, why don't you just take a, a minute or two to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I am uh, today the CEO of Marketing Cloud at Salesforce. Uh Prior to that, um, you know, I really got my start uh, by starting a marketing automation company in Atlanta called Pardot. Um, I ultimately sold that to a larger digital marketing company, Exact Target, and then about ten minutes later, we sold Exact Target to Salesforce. So I got into Salesforce uh, in 2013, and I've had a variety of roles and and run several different clouds at Salesforce. But today I'm running the marketing cloud, very focused uh, on kind of bringing B2B and B2C marketing together, really uh, making the the best use of all the different technologies that sit in both of those platforms. And actually starting today, I've taken over our commerce cloud as well. Uh, So I'm really looking after both marketing and commerce uh, for all of our customers at Salesforce. Congratulations. Very exciting. It's Pretty much every cloud, I would say at this point, or nearly every cloud. I've, I've touched a few of them over the past seven years, but you know, it's been one of the fun things about working at Salesforce. A lot of times people ask, you know, hey, you're an entrepreneur, what's next for you? And I really credit our co-CEO, Mark Benioff, with taking a lot of the entrepreneurs whose companies he's acquired and putting them in different roles within Salesforce. So really allowing you to stretch and grow. Um, and so your, your journey really doesn't stop after acquisition. In a lot of ways, it only accelerates, uh, and so that that's been really lucky for me. So, when you say that first acquisition was a ten-minute, uh, you know, hot second. That's right. Um, in reality, how long was that? Yeah, I would say six months after the close, I really started to get involved in the second acquisition. Um, so we were we were acquired by Exact Target uh, in October of 2012. Um, and really, by the late spring of 2013, we were working on this deal with Salesforce um, and then wound up closing it in the summer. So it was less than a year from close to close. Yeah, it's a great story. And I've watched all of it unfold, which has been really exciting. Um, I've been a Pardot customer three different times. So it's been uh, really interesting to be on this journey with you. Um, one thing I wanted to start off with is um, kind of going back to the beginning, right? So you mentioned uh, doing email marketing for IHG um, and then you started Pardot. So I just want to, Certainly hear firsthand and then just give our listeners a chance to understand what inspired you to make that move and start your own company, Pardot in this case. Yeah, you know, I, I always thought about starting my own company. Um, and so even, you know, sort of back in college, um, you know, I remember being a freshman uh, at Duke and the most important item we owned in college 
was a Facebook. And when I talk to some of my team members right now and I tell them about this, they're like, oh, you had like an early version of Facebook. And I'm like, no, we had, we had a book of people's faces uh, with pages and everything. And, it, and that was essentially the social network when you were in college. You had a book of everyone in your class and Absolutely. you could look them up, you could find them. You know what I'm talking about. I do. And I remember saying to my friends as an 18-year-old, you know, it would be a million dollar idea. What if we put the Facebook on CD-ROM? Uh, and when you think about it today, you think about the different ridiculous parts of that statement. One, in my mind, a huge startup success and exit would be a million dollars. Two, I wanted to put something on a CD. And three, I said ROM at the end of the sentence. <laughs> so it, it turns out there was a better way to do that. Um, after college, I was in Japan. Uh, so I grew up doing a sport called judo. Uh, it's an Olympic sport. Um, and I, I just loved competing and training. So I wound up living in Japan for a while. And I also started a startup uh, while I was there. And I still had this kind of bend around social networking. And this was 2003. This was before Facebook existed. The biggest social network in the world was Friendster. MySpace was kind of just an upstart. They had 400,000 users, which we thought was a huge number of users. And so a few friends of mine and I built one of the first social networks in Japan. And it was a spectacular failure. Um, first of all, we were four co-founders. Uh, only one of us spoke Japanese. None of us were Japanese. So recipe for success right there. <laughs> Uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, would tell me almost every day how terrible of an idea this was, how no one in Japan would ever use a social network. Great support system. Yeah. And I'm like, honey, I'm so lucky to be with you. You complete me. Uh, today, she's on Facebook every day. And every time she clicks like on a post, part of me dies inside. But, uh, but anyway, we, we couldn't get it to work. We were early. We didn't know what we were doing. All kinds of reasons. Um, but, but I had kind of the bug of wanting to create something. Um, so it wasn't until a few years later when I was back in the States, I was doing digital marketing at Intercontinental Hotels Group, and I met back up with a friend uh, from college who was kind of a serial entrepreneur. We were both 26 at this point, but he had already started a few different businesses, some successful, some not. His background was in web content management. My background was in email marketing, uh, as short of a background as it was. Those really were the two building blocks of what became marketing automation. He was running a B2B company at the time, and he said, this is just way too hard. You know, I'm using all these different solutions for marketing. None of them really feel like they're a fit for me. I know what's happening in deals when my reps are on the phone with prospects or with customers. I have no idea what's happening in between the phone calls. How do we solve for what's happening in between the phone calls? And it turns out that that's the space that became marketing automation. It turns out that the timing of 2007, in spite of it being a horrendous economy, wound up being a really good time to start a company. Um, and and that's that's really where we got our start. Um, it's a great story. I love the CD-ROM piece. Um, yeah. It makes me think of my time at Gartner. So when I got to Gartner, we, uh, we mostly were paper-based and we said, why don't we deliver the research to our customers on CD-ROM? What a great idea that would be. Um, luckily, that's not the case anymore, but I, I can relate to the CD-ROM That's comment. right. That's yeah. right. Um, so... Can you just briefly describe for the listeners, um, you know, how would you uh, really describe the use of content within Pardot's marketing strategy? So whether you think about the early days of Pardot or even later on in Pardot, um, how did content really contribute to Pardot's success? So when we were a startup, we really thought about how can we punch above our weight? Um, and one of the ways that we did that was with content um, and really being known as kind of one of the authorities on marketing automation. Marketing automation was so new in 2007, 2008. Um, it really, the industry wasn't even called marketing automation. Um, you know, the name would change between demand generation and lead management and revenue performance management. It had a new name almost every year. Um, and people were really starving for information uh, about how to do this stuff. Um, and our stance in the market was being the easiest possible vendor to use, the easiest to deploy, the fastest time to value. Um, and so for us, how-to content became really important. Um, you know, how, how do you go about setting up uh, a really strong lead nurturing campaign? What are quick wins that you could do with lead nurturing? So they, I would say they were very sort of practical, almost how-to style content. Um, and that was our kind of niche within the market. We weren't sort of at the high end, you know, writing white papers. It was much more sort of in the trenches uh, style content. We also did a lot of video. 
Uh, and again, the video for us was much more practical. It wasn't you know professionally produced pieces. It was much more here. Let's walk you through you know how you would set up a campaign, how you would do sort of a, a day in the life of a marketer. Um, we had a very lean and mean marketing team. Um, it was ironic because we were a marketing automation company, uh, but you could say we used, you know, we, we ate our own dog food. We used our own solution. Um, and I think by the time we had a hundred employees, we had two full-time marketers. Uh, so we were about as lean as possible. And essentially the, we were, um, we were a bootstrapped company. We didn't raise, you know, a dime of funding. And that was very different in the marketing automation world. And so to where you had very heavily funded competitors. So to make ourselves stretch, really, we hired people that were selling, building, or supporting. And for the most part, you know, it was, it was people doing one of those three things. And then marketing, it was stretching to get as much possible value out of each marketer. I'd also say we took the approach um, you know, to marketing in terms of where to put our content in the same way that you know, Burger King, I think, was famous for in its real estate strategy. So McDonald's probably has the best real estate team in the world. They could figure out the optimal place to put the next McDonald's and then Burger anywhere King in the world. Anywhere in the world. And then Burger King's strategy was to put a Burger King across the street from McDonald's. Yep. And I think, you know, we were the same way. We'd look at competitors who raised a hundred million dollars. We'd sort of let them figure out what was working and what wasn't. And we would show up in all the same places and we would win our share of the deals. So we wouldn't spend our money building the market. We would spend our money in sort of much more tactical content. Um, you know, and, and content that would push us over the edge in deals. I love that. So let's fast forward a little bit. So Pardot gets acquired and obviously you really wanted to communicate a certain story to your customers. That was a really important turning point. I've been through three acquisitions. I know it's a really sensitive time and you really don't want to lose any customers along the way. So what was the story that you really wanted customers and the market to hear and again, that same question, how did content and content marketing help you tell that story? Sure. So again, we went through two acquisitions and each one had a different narrative. Um, so we first, you know, when we first went to Exact Target, that was a marketing company being acquired by a larger digital marketing company. And so that has sort of one set of benefits for customers uh, and a very different set of benefits than when we were acquired by Salesforce. So in that first acquisition, um, you know, a lot was talking about kind of being a kindred spirit in terms of culture. Um, exact Target really cared deeply about its corporate culture. And actually, in their S1 statement, their filing when they went public, under their list of competitive differentiators, they listed corporate culture. And I, back then, I had really never seen that in an S1 document. Um, and so that was something that really stuck with us. Yeah, and when we met that founding team, it just resonated. It's yeah. not. You're right. It's not something you would see in an M and A process or a due diligence right. process. Very interesting. Yeah. And so for us, you know, we we were rated as the best place to work in Atlanta the year before our acquisition, the year after our acquisition, and so that that just spoke deeply to us. So a lot of the narrative around the acquisition was kind of these two kindred spirits uh, coming together uh, and doing the best of B two C and the best of B two B. Typically, large enterprises are both. Uh, and they have the use case and the needs for both. Um, you know, it's it's almost like, you know, you, you wouldn't play golf with one club, right? You'd use the right tool for the job. And so being able to address all marketing needs, not just B2B, not just B2C, was a big part of our narrative. When we were acquired by Salesforce, we told a slightly different narrative because, again, the benefits were quite different. We were a Salesforce partner since our start. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we were always a little bit nervous Salesforce would get into the space uh, and what would happen to us if they did. And of course, ultimately, they did. We were, we were lucky we wound up on the right end of it. Um, but the advantage to our customers was getting closer and closer to a native integration. You know, if you think of Salesforce or Sales Cloud as the operating system for our customers, could we just be something on top of that operating system? And when you're separate companies, you can be tightly integrated, but you're still held at arm's length. Uh, once you're part of the same family, once you're part of the same company, all of a sudden that unlocks a lot of advantages. Yeah, they break down. They don't necessarily break down immediately, right? And your customers get that. Your customers understand that. But if you can show, hey, this is where we're headed. This is our North Star. And, and also this is sales and marketing truly coming together. That was something that we could really uniquely tell in the market. And sales and marketing alignment was really why this space existed to begin with. Uh, and that was something that 
we couldn't tell when we were independent. We couldn't tell when we were part of Exact Target. Once we were part of Salesforce and we became really closely aligned with that sales cloud, we could tell it pretty uniquely in a way that no one else could. That's great. Um, let's come back to culture for a second, because that was one of the things I wanted to dig into and I want our listeners to hear. Uh, I know a little bit about it, but I want to hear more and I know they do too. Um, so at Notch, we always talk about the difference between culture fit and culture ad, right? So culture fit is, um, can they just kind of be absorbed into our culture and are they kind of the right match yep. versus culture ad? Are they really uh, helping us make our culture bigger and better, right? Yep. And so uh, I think the question is really, how did the Pardot brand add to the culture at Salesforce? So I would say our values were very well aligned, um, but different. Um, and that's okay. I think, you know, anytime two companies come together, it's very unlikely that their cultures are going to be the same, that their values are going to be the same. And that doesn't matter. They just have to be compatible. Um, both companies cared very deeply about employees. Both companies cared very deeply about customers. The priority of those two things were different for the two companies. Salesforce holds the customer sacrosanct. So customer success. So Salesforce's values, you know, if you think of the four values we always show on a slide, the first two are trust. And then very closely following trust is customer success. So only if we have trust do we earn the right to make customers successful. Only if we make customers successful can we then innovate and, and take things from there. In the Pardot world, we always said, be the best place to be an employee and be the best place to be a customer. And order mattered for us. So that's how we thought about things. So those are slightly nuanced, a little bit different, uh, but, but that distinction was still important. Pardot really became the Atlanta office for the company. Um, so when we were acquired, Salesforce had a pretty small footprint in Atlanta. It was really a remote office, largely in kind of Regis spaces. Um, and we were, you know, this plucky startup at the top floor of a 34-story office building riding around in scooters at the time. Uh, but we brought in- Razor, you know, these, razor scooters? Of course, Razor scooters. Of course, have yeah. to have them. Yeah, if you're a startup, right? Worth your salt. Um, we brought in, you know, the enterprise sales team that was based in Atlanta and kind of gradually through osmosis shared one another's culture. And you fast forward to today, there are hundreds and hundreds of people in that same Atlanta office. So we've taken floor by floor by floor. We've named it a Salesforce Tower Atlanta. We're building an Ohana floor, you know, one of our kind of top floors that we have at all of our towers. Um, and, and that really came from the acquisition. And I think when you visit that office, you know, you feel sort of this very distinct vibe. It's very Salesforce, but it also has a little something different. Um, and that's a lot of that Pardot DNA that's mixed in as well. That's great. Um, we won't talk about Pardot the whole time, but I yeah. do have one more question on Pardot, which is, uh, I remember distinctively, there was a mantra of keep Pardot weird at one point. So I'd love for you to just tell our listeners, why was that started in the first place? What were you trying to preserve? And then was it really meant to be an internal campaign or did you really want it to expand externally also? Yeah. So keep Pardot weird was really an internal campaign. Uh, to just remind people, hey, you know, we our uh, our citizenship is Salesforce, our heritage is Pardot. Think about it that way. Those two things can be compatible, and so bring the best of what you have from the startup, mix it with the best of where you are at Salesforce, um, and and have it be as you said, a culture ad. Um, again, meant to be an internal campaign. Obviously, you know, there are all kinds it, of laptop stickers and external. things like that. Yep. So it became external and it was just kind of a, you know, a fun phrase uh, that people would remember. Um, and yeah. so it would just be kind of the little, you know, the rituals that we used to have. It was, you know, things in Atlanta, like the, uh, the meeting rooms being named after streets in Atlanta and having street signs. So that just winds up being that 75 of the meeting rooms have Peachtree in the name, uh, which is, which is definitely an Atlanta thing. Um, but you know, at this point at Salesforce, I've seen so many acquisitions come through and I often speak with the acquired leader and I always just encourage them, you know, to stay a little weird, right. Yeah. To, uh, to bring that startup heritage with them. And a lot of what we look for when we do acquisitions is that culture add, um, and to bring kind of a new way of thinking into the company, merge it with our own culture, um, because that's how you get better. You just bring in, you know, new points of view. Yeah. It's funny you say it was meant to be an internal campaign because you're right. It kind of leaked its way out to the external audience. 
Uh, and on the customer side, I remember seeing it thinking like, all right, I see what they're doing. I can, I can help them with this. I can help them tell the story and, and, yep. and, and help them be successful through this acquisition. So uh, you didn't intentionally do it, but I think it made its way to customers and certainly advocates um, probably helped tell that story for you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, the, the, we've been blessed uh, to have very loyal and, and fun advocates um, and I think that has been really consistent actually with Salesforce. Um, you know, Salesforce has always really celebrated the administrator, the admin, the power user. Uh, we've really formalized it over the last few years with this community that we call trailblazers. Um, and so that a little bit of that DNA is shared as well. And it's, it's always been great to have them. That's great. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Let's come over to the marketing cloud. Yep. Um, so the foundation of the marketing cloud, uh, we know, came from the exact target acquisition. You already told our listeners about that. And that also included Buddy Media, Rating 6. There were a lot of acquisitions along the way, plus organic growth. Um, there certainly are a lot of products that make up the marketing cloud. How did you go about bringing all of those products together to tell a cohesive story? So, you know, at Salesforce, I think the currency is storytelling. Uh, we try to make, you know, fairly complicated things, business applications uh, that, you know, that work across a really wide variety of jobs to be done. We try to distill it into a story and, and make it as simple as possible. In Marketing Cloud, uh, you know, if you think about the complexity of marketing, um, back when I started my startup, there were about 100 companies in MarTech. You know, at least if you look at Scott Brinker's slide of the Martech seven thousand vendors this year, right? Today there are over seven thousand, and that is that's incredible. That's in twelve years going from a hundred to seven thousand, uh, and making sense of that madness is pretty difficult to do. Um, the way we think about it is there are really four swim lanes for marketers, and these are the four things that marketers have been trying to do forever. So we say know, personalize, engage, measure. The marketers are trying to know their customers. They're trying to understand their customers. They're trying to personalize every interaction they have with their customers, You know, essentially creating a segment of one. That's the catchphrase often used in marketing. Um, they're trying to engage with them across any channel, right? a really omni-channel strategy at this point. And then they're trying to measure everything so they can get better. All of our solutions in marketing and in marketing cloud fit into kind of one of those four swim lanes. That's how we really bring it together. We tell this journey of knowing, personalizing, engaging, and measuring. And that, that's been pretty easy for people today to digest. That's great. Um, coming back to the B2B audience versus the B2C audience that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, you've been responsible for several clouds at Salesforce now. Um, how do you think about communicating to a B2B audience compared to a B2C audience? Uh, or do you believe there really shouldn't be a strong separation in strategy? Today, they're still pretty different uh, often in terms of what they care about. There's some shared goals, um, but the biggest difference that I think about is in B2C, you have one customer. You have the customer. In B2B, you really have two customers. You have the customer and you have your sales team. And I think the best B2B marketers really understand that. They really understand, hey, I could be super successful in sort of my marketing goals, but if sales doesn't hit their number, no one cares, right? And so they understand that it's a shared number. Right, they start to think of themselves as being responsible, you know, not only for pipeline, but pipeline they're influencing, pipeline that they're accelerating, and ultimately closed one revenue. Um, and maybe they're even comping themselves that way, or comping their teams that way if they're involved in the demand generation process. Um, that's a big difference from what B two C companies care about. They're just playing a different game because there isn't, unless it's a sort of a considered purchase B two C, you know, selling mortgages, selling it you know, uh, yachts and planes and things like that, unless it's, you know, kind of that sale, there probably isn't a sales team involved. Um, and so the, the nuances of that make it pretty different. And it also makes it pretty difficult to speak to both types of marketers in the same room, in one keynote, et cetera. Yep. Very interesting. So, um, you know, the, the Salesforce marketing cloud uh, is the most recent responsibility that you've been given. Um, can you tell the, the audience a little bit about your vision uh, and product strategy for the marketing cloud and also how you uh, plan to go about striking a balance between both performance marketing and brand marketing? So in terms of vision for the marketing cloud, the two main places I want to take us, um, one is to create a true 
single source of truth for marketing. The second is to create a true platform for marketing. Neither of these things have really existed anywhere. Um, a single source of truth exists in a few other fields or many other fields, but it's never existed in marketing. So what do I mean by a single source of truth? Um, you know, if you think about the sales world, sales has a single source of truth. Salesforce solved that, right? That's, that's how Salesforce you know, became the company that it is today. And our customers use it for all of their sales-related data. And they often use this phrase, if it's not in Salesforce, it didn't happen. I use that phrase all the time. I use it at home with my kids. You know, my son will say, hey, I finished my homework. Did you put it in Salesforce? Of course. No? All right, get back to your room. Uh, <laughs> so you can tell I'm a pretty good parent. Um, but you know, you think about companies like Workday. They created a single source of truth for HR. It's the center of the universe for HR and everything else plugs into it. You could say Atlassian did it for development. You could say GitHub did it for code, but it's never existed for marketing. And it's always, the truth has sort of always lived at the fringes of marketing. It's lived inside the email marketing solution. It's lived in the marketing automation solution. It's maybe it's lived in advertising or some personalization system, but it's always been balkanized. It's always sort of a little bit of truth has, has been in each system. And now we're finally at the point where it's becoming more and more possible to build a really, really scalable, what's called a customer data platform or CDP. Um, you know, using a data lake, ingesting all of your data, you know, both known on known prospects and customers and also unknown visitors, putting it into one place so you can do segmentation, you can build profiles, and then you can activate it across any channel. So it's sort of channel agnostic on the way in, it's channel agnostic on the, adv uh, on the activation side. And this really becomes the beating heart of marketing. And I think, you know, really, this is the battleground for any MarTech company right now. I think if you don't win this sort of data layer uh, as a MarTech company, you're really just going to become a channel. Um, and that's okay. Channels can be incredibly valuable. Um, and, and most MarTech companies to date really have been channels. But I think the battle right now to be fought is around you know, winning that, that customer data platform. So that's one of my key priorities. Um, and most large enterprises right now are at the beginning of their CDP journey. They're thinking about, hey, do we want to build one of these internally? We want to look what's out there, but they're thinking about, hey, how do we bring all of our customer data together so that we can activate it across our marketing channels? How do you think CCPA is changing their thought process and how they go about that? Well, you know, CCPA, what's interesting about CCPA is it's probably not new for most marketers because we already had to go through it with GDPR. Um, and so it's really, if you didn't already adopt GDPR uh, as your standard everywhere, you're probably a little bit behind. Um, I think the best approach in general in terms of privacy is just take whatever the strictest stance is and make that your new standard globally. Lowest, uh, lowest common denominator. Lowest common denominator. You're, you're more than likely future-proofing yourself that way. The other thing is it's just easier, right? It's, it's going to get pretty difficult if you try to take advantage of things being a little bit looser in one jurisdiction and tighter in another jurisdiction. I think lowest common denominator, if it's workable, is, is the way to go. And you know, when GDPR uh, went into effect, that's what we saw many, many brands do is just adopt it globally. Um, and so CCPA really is kind of enforcing a GDPR-like system in California as well. Um, so I would say, you know, for the most part, people have already been contemplating this. Um, and to a degree, CDP should make it easier for them um, because as part of CDP, you can really think about managing consent in one centralized place. So when I talked about how the truth lives on the fringes today in marketing, uh, and a little bit might live in the email system, the advertising system, that's the same for consent. Right? All of those systems track consent differently. And having kind of one master database where you're able to manage customer consent is hugely strategic. Uh, and I think the only way to do that is for companies to really either use a CDP or take a CDP-like approach to that. Yeah, we fully, fully agree with that on the notch side also. We'll be right back to pros and content after this brief message. The Pros and Content Podcast is brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform for brands. For a demo, and to learn how to best plan, measure, optimize, and benchmark your content marketing strategy, visit us at notch.com. K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. Notch. It's all you'll ever need. Uh, 
Uh, so moving away from data just for a second, so you're obviously heavily involved with technology and data every day. Um, what opportunity do you have to work on more of the creative side of the business and the storytelling side of the business? So when you think of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud, um, what what role or how much time do you have to be involved in that? So general manager roles or sort of CEO roles or I guess mini CEO roles. All right, I don't know how many CEOs a company could have. Um, we have we have more than more than one, more than two. Uh, you spend a lot of your time on narrative. You spend a lot of your time on marketing. You're a little bit of a jack of all trades. So, you know, probably your first priority is the product, product vision, you know, go to market strategy around that product. But a big piece of that is how do you talk about it? How do you tell the narrative? Um, you know, what is your product marketing strategy? So I'm deeply involved in the product marketing uh, for Marketing Cloud, just as I was with Sales Cloud, um, you know, prior to that. And you know what's fun about this move into marketing cloud is you have to be on your game, right? When you're marketing to IT, that's one thing, right? I'm not I'm not saying it's easy or not a challenge, but when you're marketing to marketing, you have to be on your game. You have to do incredible marketing because marketers just expect it, right? They they've seen everything before. They've probably tried everything that you're thinking about trying, uh, and so that that is a really fun challenge uh, to try to to try to crack that nut. Um, and so as we head into next year, you know, a big focus for us is, you know, being a little bit ahead, uh, perhaps of other parts of Salesforce and thinking about where are the areas we can push and experiment because our Pave the way for the other marketers. units. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because we have, in terms of marketing, the most forward thinking prospects. So we need to be the most forward thinking product marketers as well. Yeah. And, and to some extent, you're expected to do that and lead the way. A- absolutely. And, and to some extent, from the prospects, from the customers, we have permission to do that, right? They would expect it. Um, now, the fun thing about Salesforce is, in a lot of ways, we're an events company, right? Events are so near and dear to us uh, and fostering community, bringing people together, uh, whether it's Dreamforce, which is once a year, but bringing you know 150,000 plus people to San Francisco, smaller events throughout the year, there are hundreds and hundreds of events, to just bringing people to our offices, which are physical extensions of those events, the the branding feels really, really similar, gives us a lot of opportunities to sort of really uniquely engage with marketers using our brand, using our events, uh, and also bringing those marketers together to not only, so we're not only telling our story, but we're getting them to tell their stories. Um, we find, you know, when you get a customer telling their own story, that's just much more effective than anything we can do. Powerful. Yep. Yeah. So I know the marketing cloud is made up of several studios, right? Email studio is one of them. Is that still the case? A- absolutely. Okay. That, that is the anchor tenant for marketing cloud. So whether you know it's the Pardot world, the old world, or email studio, um, email testing, A-B testing, copy testing is still a big part of it, I would assume. Um, it always makes me think of somebody like a David Ogilvy who spent tons of time, decades really, perfecting ad copy and layouts. And so... How important do you think copy testing is today? And do you think it's a nice balance between what we're talking about here in terms of creativity and data? So my first real job out of college was actually at an advertising agency. Um, and I worked for a small advertising agency in Tokyo. Um, and you know, I remember reading on advertising uh, by Ogilvy, uh, which was sort of the Bible for advertising uh, for many, many years. Um, so that is, that is near and dear to me. What's nice, in probably in a way that he could not have comprehended, certainly when he wrote that, is it is so easy to test things now. It is incredibly, you know, it used to be so much higher calorie to test. I think about how much work he and his oh, team incredible. must have gone through to do that testing. Oh, I mean, incredible. And, you know, especially for direct mail and for print advertising. I mean, but he was so scientific about it. But, you know, you look at technology, you know, that we've had for more than a decade it's made it so easy to do A-B testing and email um, and not just A-B testing, but multivariate testing. And you can start to get really advanced with things where the system is really doing so much of the work for you that you should frankly be testing every time you do anything. Um, it's funny you say that somebody on my team right before I walked out of the office said, do you think I should put a megaphone in the subject line or not? I said, just find out. out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, the data the data will bear it out. Um, you know, and And as a marketer, you know, you have to come up with the candidates, but you don't have to make the ultimate decision. You can prove the ultimate decision. Um, and I think, you know, marketing for so long used to be about the art of marketing. And, you know, you had folks thinking about direct response and bringing, bringing a little more science to it. 
But obviously, the internet brought a tremendous amount of science to marketing that's only getting easier and easier. You know, every day it's just easier and easier because you have a huge amount of data to work with. You can bring so many people together, um, you know, whether it's, you know, the web, whether it's social, whether it's email, mobile, et cetera. Uh, and then you can really just run experiments in a way that you couldn't before. So I think, you know, that that is here to stay forever. What you might see that that will change is the marketer might not even be coming up with the candidates. The system might be coming up with the candidates and doing the testing. Um, and so you you really have kind of this nice blend of the marketer and the machine working together uh, with the machine kind of taking on more and more of content creation than it ever had in the past. And I think that that's a really interesting opportunity for AI in marketing. Yeah, it's a really great segue to um, my next topic, which is um, I was at CES last week. I had the pleasure of meeting your CMO, Stephanie Buscemi. Um, and one of the sessions um, that she was part of with us was around data and creativity. So really thinking left side, right side of the brain. And um, it got me thinking about um, how uh, her team interacts with your team. So with you um, being responsible for the marketing cloud and her having responsibility across the entire org as a shared service, um, how do your two teams uh, work together? And I asked that because we also ask our customers that question a lot too. So do you have a content team that's shared across the entire org and none of that team sits within the business units? Or do you have a combination of both? Or do you allow it to all sit within the actual business units themselves? So it'd be great if you could give our listeners an idea of what that looks like and, and what you would recommend. Sure. And I, you know, I would start by saying I'm sure there's no perfect model. Every company does it differently. Um, you know, there are a lot of companies that have kind of really true, strict PLs, uh, where you might have a general manager that just owns everything soup to nuts and they run it as a business unit. Um, you know, they have less shared services. They sort of have their own marketing capacity and run things that way. Um, at Salesforce, we're more matrixed. Uh, so our business units typically have product marketing. Um, but then things because they have that expertise. They have the expertise, they sit with the product teams. They're, you know, uh, some companies think about two in a box in terms of building product. They think of maybe a head of product and a head of engineering. I think more like four in a box. Um, so there's a head of product, a head of engineering, a head of UX, and a head of product marketing. And if you think about the jobs to be done of those four people, the head of product decides the what. What are we building? The head of engineering decides the how. How are we going to get it done? How do we build it? The head of UX is how does it feel? How does it look? And the head of product marketing is how do we talk about it? And those four people should make every decision around the product. And that should cascade down through the entire organization. You know, maybe towards the bottom of the organization, it's those, you know, it's four people managing a feature, but they should still kind of run that feature like it's a business. They should make all the decisions. You should push decision making down to that group of four uh, whenever, whenever it's possible. So product marketing, I think, you know, it's for us, it's really important to sit with the business. They're close to it. Where things like demand generation, campaigns, uh, creative, you know, sort of company creative, it's great to have those as a shared service because we can get so much leverage that way, so much understanding of what's working, what's not. You know, you have access to so much data when you're looking at campaigns across all of Salesforce versus, you know, campaigns we might be running for marketing cloud versus sales cloud, et cetera. The other thing for us is since our business units often are structured around products, it forces us in a good way to be more solution-oriented rather than product-oriented. If we did everything you know, within our own little fiefdoms, our own worlds related to products, all of our campaigns would be product-related. Uh, and that's okay, it's effective, but it's pretty tactical. Um, and when I think about how our customers buy from us, they typically don't want to buy a product, they want to buy a solution, right? They, they might not even want to know our product names. They just want to know, how do I solve this problem that I have? And typically, that's a solution. It doesn't sit in any one product. So that's really interesting you say that. So one of my favorite quotes is by Peter Drucker, the customer rarely buys what the company thinks it's selling. So like I said, I've been a Pardot customer three times. I've been a Salesforce customer four times at this point. I know Salesforce makes great software. Of course, customers are buying great software. Most people already know that, right? Um, besides that and solution selling, what else do you think Salesforce customers are really buying? I think it, uh, I think it depends on the segment. I think it depends on who the buyer is. Uh, so sometimes the buyer is a CEO. Sometimes it's a CEO-led transformation. And in that case, 
that's exactly what they're buying. They're not buying products. They're not even really buying solutions. They're buying trans- business transformation. And they say, hey, Salesforce, I want you to be my transformation partner or one of my transformation partners. And I look at you as a change agent. Um, and so that is a very sort of different kind of purchase than a company buying a solution, saying, hey, I really need a lead to cash solution uh, where I have this workflow of I have this funnel of leads, I need to turn them into deals, and I need to get quotes out to them quickly and then make that process better. That would really be a solution that's spanning a lot of different products. And then below that is where you sort of get into products that are tactical. And so the buyers might be, again, that CEO for the company transformation, where in the old days we would think, hey, we're selling sales cloud, we're selling service cloud. The CEO would say, I don't care what your clouds are called, I want, I want you to help me transform my business. Below that, you know, you might have a, a CRO or head of sales, you might have a CIO, and really they have a problem that they need a solution for. So and it's some, probably a big problem, right? It's probably a big problem. Something some critical, that's built up over years or decades. Yeah, and something that it's a burning platform maybe. It's some critical process that just it's reached the end of its life and they know they have to change. And that probably lends, its, lends itself to a solution sale. And then below that, you might have someone in the business who has an acute product need. Um, and you know maybe it's Greenfield in that they're not using something, but you know, they, they just joined the company and they're like, hey, how are we not doing email marketing in this market? I need an email marketing solution. That's much more tactical and that's really a product sale. So I think you know, the answer to that question probably depends on the level at which the company is making that decision. Right. I think it's very interesting, that digital transformation story, um, because any company that's going through a digital transformation probably is finding it a challenge and they're really looking to you to be their partner. It's interesting. Um, you know, you see that most often in industries that are feeling pressure, uh, where the industry is evolving rapidly, uh, and you you just have incumbents that realize, you know, we have huge advantages that you know have lasted for decades and might actually now become disadvantages. Um, you know, and they they are competing against startups that sort of don't play by the same rules that they used to play by that have a much more direct relationship with customers, for example, and they realize that they themselves need to change. Um, when you think about you know, this big direct-to-consumer movement, that is a massive change uh, for many retailers, uh, or, or really many manufacturers. Um, you know, Gillette, for example, selling razors, you know, largely owned the market um, you know, and sold razors through distributors, through Safeway and Kroger's and Costco and Amazon. Totally disrupted. Yeah, you have you know, Harry's Razors and Dollar Shave Club. Um, and they just have this totally different relationship with the consumer. They run it totally differently. And all of a sudden, the market dynamics have just changed. And you see that sort of throughout commerce a little bit. Um, you see it with toothbrushes. You see it with mattresses. Like, I never thought you'd be able to buy a mattress and have it sent to you in the mail. And it, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen one. There's it, nothing more fun than slicing oh, that shrink wrap open. It's like that snake that pops out of the can. Yes. It's incredible, but it's incredible. And uh, I called the whole family up to watch just a few weeks ago. <laughs> You're doing an unboxing, right? Yep. Um, but that, but that's really happening across retail. But you also see the same thing in banking, where you have you know kind of very new financial technology models uh, that are just putting pressure on banks to have incredible one-to-one experiences with their customers. What's great is you know for us as consumers, it's upped kind of the game of all these other companies and their own digital experiences are getting better. Um, There's this great stat. I can't remember what percent it is. And the percent is not that important uh, because 70% of stats are made up. Uh, (laughs) But uh, it's something like for, you know, 80% of consumers having an amazing experience with any brand raises the floor on your expectations for the next brand. So what I mean by that is like, the digital experience that you have with Uber and Lyft of just how easy it is, you know, your car is coming, you don't have to pay, that raises your, your expectations for customer experience, not just for transformation, but literally for any interaction you have with any brand. You sort of subconsciously think everything should be as easy as getting my Uber or Lyft. Everything should be as easy as paying for it, rating them, et cetera. And I find that incredible that you're now not just competing against people in your industry or in your space you're competing against the best customer experience from anyone. Yeah, and it's just getting easier and easier. You think of Blockbuster and then Netflix DVDs by mail and then just Netflix on demand. What is next? 
Right. And, and very smart of Netflix to disrupt themselves. Right. They knew the change was coming. In fact, they wanted to do it, I guess, before they ever did the DVD business, but the technology wasn't there. Um, but yeah, I love, I love that idea of customer expectation anywhere, raising the bar for customer expectation everywhere. Absolutely. So we are at the beginning of 2020, and I'm sure you're thinking about the strategy. You probably thought about that a few months ago for the year. Um, what do you want your power users and your CMOs to get excited about this year? So first and foremost is CDP or customer data platform. So finally having a single source of truth for marketing. That's number one for me. Number two is this platform transformation that we're undertaking in the marketing cloud. And what I mean by platform transformation is today, we have several very powerful apps. We have a very powerful email marketing or journey app. That was uh, you know, what we acquired with Exact Target in uh, 2013. We have a very powerful B2B marketing automation app. We have a social app. Uh, we have a DMP app. Uh, but all of these are apps, right? There isn't one true platform. And there really are no true platforms in marketing, right? There isn't sort of this one base layer in marketing that you could build on top of uh, and bring those 7,000 MarTech solutions into. And that's really what we're going to start doing. We're pulling the key services out of each of those apps, and we're building a unified marketing platform. And you can think of this a little bit like what we did with Sales Cloud, with Service Cloud, with communities, with the platform. The advantage of building that in a platform mindset is if any one of those products adds a feature, they all get it because it's the same underlying platform. If a third-party vendor integrates with one of those products, it integrates with all of those products. For marketing, we have the opportunity to do that. We have to start to pull apart our services like segmentation, like personalization, basically all the core services that any marketer expects. And then once we do that, we make them extensible. Now those 7,000 other vendors can integrate much more easily with us. Uh, and that becomes really powerful for a CMO because CMOs are experimenting all the time. They're trying new technologies. They're throwing things out. They're adding new things. The average CMO probably has 15 different things in their MarTech stack. That's only, you know, if we look at the trends, it's only going to get more complicated. So having that base layer, that platform, having that CDP that becomes the beating heart of marketing really gives them kind of steady ground to add all the rest of their MarTech stack into. That's going to be a gradual journey, right? That's, you know, sort of changing the engines of the plane while we're flying it. We've done this before at Salesforce. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that platform transformation. So it's interesting you touched on CMOs and the average number of technologies in a MarTech stack. Um, I would say the CMO role has been the fastest transforming role I have ever seen. And I think most people or many people would agree with that. Um, how would you say you and the marketing cloud and Salesforce are pushing to define the CM role of the future? I, I think the CMO of the future needs to be probably a lot more data-driven than they perhaps were in the past. Um, you know, I think they just need to be comfortable with the art and the science of marketing because I think things are just tilting so heavily towards the science in terms of the technology that's really going to empower them. Um, you know, when I think about not only marketers of the future, but most, most roles that we work with in Salesforce, there's going to be this big need to work alongside AI. Uh, so not an either or, not a human or AI, but to work alongside it. And to use sort of an offline analogy to explain what I mean there, uh, I grew up uh, playing chess pretty competitively. I know what you're thinking. Like, this guy did judo, judo he played and chess. chess. Like, is there anything he can't do? Um, but uh, I remember when Kasparov, the world champion, who was the greatest player of his generation, played IBM's Deep Blue. And he crushed it. And I thought, wow, this is a great day for humanity. Like the best chess player in the world easily beat the best chess computer in the world. And then he played it again a few years later and he got absolutely crushed. And I thought, this is a dark day for humanity. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, but I had solace in the fact that Go, uh, the Asian board game, which is way more complicated than chess, was still considered unsolvable. And most AI experts theorized we were like 30 years from solving Go at that point. And then just a couple of years ago, Google's DeepMind beat the best Go player in the world handily. Uh, and that guy actually just retired uh, because he, he said it was sort of pointless, uh, which is, which is kind of sad. Uh, and so now you could think like, 
what's happening. Are we like five minutes away from Terminator 2? Uh, but you know, if you take the really optimistic side of, of how we're going to work with AI and you, you still use that chess analogy, there's this new form of chess uh, where you can enter as a human, you can enter a computer program, or you can enter as a human and a computer team. And the winner is essentially always the human and computer team. So even though the computer can calculate perfectly, there's something it doesn't have. It doesn't have this kind of intuition, this feel for the game, this kind of knack and creativity. And marketing is probably like the best example where you need this intuition, you need this creativity, you need this knack. You pair it with that kind of raw computing power and processing power and ability to learn of the AI. And I think you can get something really special. So we're all going to need to learn how to work with AI. I think in in the marketer's case, you know, that's as true as anywhere else. And I think the CMO of the future will really creatively figure out where are the places to introduce AI in their organization? How do they not see it as a threat, but really something to work with to give them a competitive advantage? That's great. Absolutely. Well, this has been a really great conversation, Adam. I really appreciate it. I hope it's uh, less than two years until we see each other again. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So that was my conversation with Adam Blitzer. I really liked how Adam talked about punching above Pardot's weight, especially in the early days, and how they just kept showing up at the same places as their competitors. I'm also thrilled about the work that Adam and his team are doing with the Salesforce Marketing Cloud in terms of reducing the complexity between integration points, really to give marketers one platform that provides all the necessary tools on a single source of truth, and striking the right balance between human intelligence and artificial intelligence along the way. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode, and if you have any feedback about my conversation with Adam, please email me at chris at notch.com. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more amazing content about the pros and cons of making content or being a better storyteller in today's world, please head to prosandcontent.co for more episodes. The best thing you could do for us is to rate, review, and share the series so we can grow the community and the much-needed conversation around the purpose and importance of brand storytelling. See you next time on Pros and Content.